On today's episode, I had Paige Abbott come on, who's been a registered psychologist for over 10 years and offers private counseling services based in Calgary. She provides professional counseling services for several different things, but today we focus primarily on eating disorders. Um, And that was mainly just because it's such a prevalent thing in society today. And um, being someone who struggled with an eating disorder in the past, I really wanted to take a deeper dive into it. We talked about myths and facts, common eating disorders, how genetics play a role, treatments, and lots more. So sit back and enjoy. It's a great episode. And Paige answered all the questions. And side note, if you can rate and leave a review for my podcast, I would be forever grateful. Let's get into it. Hi, Paige. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to talk to you. Tina, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited too. Of course. Um, do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So my name is Paige Abbott and I'm a registered psychologist in the province of Alberta. And I've been registered since 2009. Um, And in my career, I've worked in a few different environments. So I've worked in a college environment with students. I've worked in an employee and family assistance program environment. So dealing with employees and their families on a variety of different issues. Um, And I also worked at an outpatient addiction and mental health clinic. And most recently, I started out my own part-time private practice about a year and a half ago. And I took the plunge and jumped into that full-time last August. So that's what I've been doing and maintaining that specialty in addiction, which does include issues with eating disorders, um, but of course also seeing folks who are struggling with other mental health symptoms as well. Um, So yeah, that's a little bit about my professional career, my quick resume that I can provide. (laughs) Um, And is this something that you knew you always kind of wanted to get into and like, how did that start? Yeah, it was interesting. I was growing up, I was pretty convinced that I wanted to be a writer because I just loved writing. And I actually, I wrote a young adult, like fiction novel, I think when I was 10 or 11 years old. Um, And that never went anywhere, but I was just really passionate about writing. Um, Is it out now somewhere? (laughs) No, I think I got rid of that, which is probably for the best of humanity. (laughs) I did send it to a publisher though, which I thought was pretty cut gutsy for a kid that age so I have to give my credit for that Um, but then I think it was when I was in high school that I really started to look at some what are the career trajectories if I'm going to do writing and my practical brain took over so I started looking for other options and I remember talking to different people who knew me and it all came back to you're a great listener And I really liked the psychology courses that I was taking in high school. And so that ended up being the direction that I pursued. Um, And I'm super happy that I did. I remember in my master's degree, we did a personality 
profile and my mm-hmm. personality type came out that I'm basically very well suited for being a counselor, which I thought maybe this would have been good to do six years ago rather than at the end of my education. But I was glad that it confirmed um, that psychology was something that was good to do because that's what I continued to do and have done ever since. So yeah, I'm really happy I am where I am. Awesome. Um, So yeah, you offer a lot of different services for addiction and mental health and um, eating disorders. Today, we're going to focus mostly on eating disorders. So let's get a little into that. And can you because I feel like it's so prevalent today in society and a lot of people might not even know that they have an eating disorder. So can you like define it for us and give us a few different kinds of eating disorders we might see? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great point that people, a lot of people know something's up, but they're not really sure what. Um, And so with eating disorders, it can present itself in a bunch of different ways. And so that can also make it challenging because I think often people think that an eating disorder has to either look like there's a total restriction of food, which would be more kind of anorexic type behaviors, um, or like an overindulgence in food with some purging or kind of compensating behaviors, which would be more of a a bulimic sort of behavior. Those definitely are the origins of where we started to understand disordered eating, but it's evolved in our understanding quite a lot. Um, I find also a lot of people get caught up thinking that they can't possibly have an eating disorder if their body kind of looks a certain way. So some people think, well, I'm a a fairly average weight, so I can't possibly have an eating disorder. Um, And so people may carry these these judgments or these stereotypes of what that means. Um, An eating disorder, basically I would encourage anybody if they're feeling like their relationship with food requires a lot of thought, a lot of energy, a lot of control to a certain degree. And if they are noticing it's kind of taking over their thinking, their planning, their daily routines, Mm -hmm. and that can look like a variety of things. It could be that they're consistently thinking about how to avoid and minimize and reduce their relationship with food. So more of those anorexic restrictive behaviors, Mm -hmm. it might look like constantly trying to resist that temptation to go and eat. So there might be that pull to overeat or eat um, at times where you're not actually physically hungry or needing nourishment. Um, Or it could be a preoccupation with healthy eating, just really spending a lot of time thinking about how clean the food that you're eating is, what your meals are going to be. And again, that preoccupation element. So there can Mm -hmm. be a lot of different ways that disordered eating pops up. But if you're starting to feel like your relationship with food is taking over in any way, shape or form, I think that's a good just self assessment starting point to then open up that door to talking to a healthcare professional to see Mm -hmm. if there's something more serious going on there, because an eating disorder can look like a lot of restriction, and a focus on like meeting certain behavioral goals, I need to be a certain weight, I need to have a certain body type. But it can also look like binge eating disorder. So people who may have a a fairly 
what feels like a balanced relationship with food most of the time. Mm -hmm. But then there's these pockets of time where there's just this influx of extra food doesn't even necessarily have to be unhealthy food or junk food. It's just more food than they feel they need and would like to consume. And typically mm -hmm. to the people feel physically sick and full. Um, it can also look like a preoccupation with body. So with this does come up a bit more often in men than with women, um, but a preoccupation on having sort of muscles be bigger and bigger um, and feeling like if there's leanness or a lack of muscularity in one's body, then that's right. not. Um, and yeah, and there's the, the newer version of eating disorders that we're coming to define as orthorexia, which is that preoccupation with healthy eating, um, mm -hmm. again, to the point where it becomes debilitating. And usually right. that's a factor in determining when something's healthy compared to when it's crossed over the line into unhealthy is that preoccupation and the impact that it's having on people's lives. So when it starts to take over, when it starts to come with consequence, downside, deterioration of self, that's a huge red flag and warning bell that something is maybe gone too far. Yeah. So I guess you would say it kind of depends if someone is always calorie counting, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have an eating disorder. It just kind of varies based on the extreme levels they go to and the impact it has on them. Yeah, I think we, we do have to be very cautious that we can't focus on any one particular behavior and say, okay, if this is happening, then definitely there's an eating disorder present. Um, because I think human, human beings and human behavior is much more complicated than that. Um, and it's important to have somebody who can look at those behaviors in context. So what other behaviors are happening? What's the right. motivation and the drivers behind them? Um, and also looking at the, the emotional, the mental and other components of a person's health rather than just focusing on their behavior. Okay. Um, and what are the most common eating disorders that you treat and do they vary between different like regions? Like here in Calgary, would it be different than somewhere else in Canada? That's an interesting question. I'm not actually sure about regional differences. And mm -hmm. honestly, I don't even know if any data exists on that. I think it would be interesting to yeah. find out, but I think it would be quite hard to know and track because it's my suspicion that a lot of people are struggling with eating disorders, but they're not actually seeking help for it mm -hmm. or they're seeking help for related symptoms but the eating disorder itself isn't actually being treated. Um, right. So there might be other physical health issues that are going on that those are getting the focus, but the, the rest of the eating disorder and the behaviors isn't paid attention to. Because unfortunately, even a lot of mental health clinicians are not very well trained in identifying and working with eating disorders. Um, it's the same thing with substance use concerns. And so these things do often get downplayed even by clinicians. And I've heard that from a lot of clients that they kind of hesitantly and tentatively try to bring up some of these symptoms with providers. And unfortunately, sometimes it's diminished or dismissed. Oh, well, just eat a little bit more or exercise a little bit less or more. Mm -hmm. um, 
to lose a little bit of weight and then you'll be healthy. Like there's just this quick focus on just skip to the bottom line solution and you'll be fine. Yeah. I find always sadly laughable because if it was that easy, then people wouldn't be presenting for help in the first place. Um, and for myself, I, I see eating disorders pop up in a variety of different ways. So I wouldn't say there's one particular kind that I treat more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, often I am actually treating eating issues in conjunction with other behavioral substance um, or emotional issues that people may have. So it becomes an important part of the overall package that we're looking at. Um, it's not always necessarily the only thing that we're exploring. So again, when you're treating people for addiction, um, it's my belief that addiction impacts so many parts of life and behavior. So mm-hmm. for somebody's presenting with issues with alcohol, I'm going to talk about their relationship with food, because um, chances are there is some unhealthy behavior that's crept into that world as well. Um, and for some folks, their their main issue is with eating disorders. And so that's what we focus on. But I see people who struggle with more anorexic symptoms, more with bulimic symptoms, binge eating, um, as well as the orthorexia. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, I guess what as I'm reflecting, what does pop up less is the the men who are struggling with the body image and women as well um, with that push for like heavier heavier body mass more muscularity Um, Mm -hmm. I've seen it present itself a few times but I still think that there's not as much openness for men with eating disorders to come forward as there is with women and so if we're talking about the gender lines of who presents for care it's still much more heavily weighted in my practice, in my experience anyways, to Mm -hmm. who identify as female um, than it is to people who identify as male. And speaking of some of those treatments, um, can you tell us some of the treatments that you do offer for eating disorders? I saw hypnosis is one of them. So I'm interested in hearing a bit more about that one. Yeah, so I always like to qualify, even with individual clients who are seeking out care, that mm-hmm. perspective hypnotherapy is a tool. It's not the magical cure and the only solution. So even with clients, unfortunately, some clients, they've heard, you know, these touted miracle stories that I went for a few sessions of hypnotherapy and my cravings went away, or I was able to stop this behavior that's been in my life for decades, and it just stopped. Um, And that's great, if that was actually true and happened for them. But I do believe that hypnotherapy is a complementary tool. And essentially, hypnotherapy is great, because it helps people to reframe their thinking. Mm -hmm. So you may have heard of the cognitive behavioral tool of self-talk how we talk to ourselves and trying to change that. Hypnotherapy combines that with an active state of relaxation with the idea that when we're relaxed, our minds are more open to receiving that healthy self-talk and those suggestions. So then when we're going through our daily lives, we're much more likely to have those statements just pop forward automatically needing to do them consciously. So hypnotherapy can be really helpful for helping people with the self-worth, self-esteem part of their challenges. Um, And it can also focus on helping with behavior 
changes as well. But all of that will need to be done in concert with other actions and other strategies. So ideally, I like to get people doing some different action in their physical health, with their emotional health, with relationships, Mm -hmm. and with spirituality, before we'll then bring in hypnotherapy as an adjunct tool that they can use to support that changed self-talk as they go through their journey. So it all works really nice together. I I don't know, maybe it's the, the Debbie Downer or the kind of pessimist part of me, um, but yeah. I truly don't believe there's like one, one tool that's going to change these chronic behaviors that people are struggling with. It has to be a bunch of different things. For sure. Um, and what's like the timeline usually from like when you start treatment to when you might see a change and yeah from a brain perspective there's a lot of significant change that starts to happen in our brains in about the three to six month window so if clients are prepared and able to keep engaging in services for those first three months on a pretty regular basis. So by regular, I mean, you know, every two to three weeks or so, ideally for outpatient individual care. Mm -hmm. Um, Over that time, if they're also able to make some daily changes into their routine outside of counseling sessions, people will start to see some shifting, usually in that first three to six months. And then after that point, they might start to explore other things. So initially, I find people are looking at the behaviors. So things that they do need to change, not just with their relationship with food and body and related behaviors, um, but how they're taking care of themselves overall. Then usually as time goes on, six months plus, we start to focus more on emotional health relationships. And then kind of a year plus, usually some people then are creeping into maintenance mode. And then sessions become about just maintaining the progress that they've been building over that year. Um, And then two years plus, again, we'll continue the maintenance mode. So the long and the short of it is that treating a chronic condition also does require chronic long-term care. Mm-hmm. Some people also will require more intensive care than an individual therapist like myself can provide. So that's the reason that intensive outpatient programs um, and even residential treatment programs exist because some people, the, the level of care that's provided at an outpatient level is just not going to be sufficient for their needs. Right, right. Um, let's get into some listener questions. First one I have here, do you consider making yourself throw up once every few weeks or months an eating disorder? So this comes back to what we were saying before that I don't feel comfortable to provide a clear diagnosis to somebody I've never met on the basis of one behavior with no other context. But I would definitely say that purging behavior is a and not super common behavior. And so to me, that is a red flag of a dysfunctional or unhealthy relationship with food and with body. Mm -hmm. Um, So for somebody who's asking a question like that, I would definitely recommend that they put that symptom forward to a trusted healthcare provider. 
and then see if there's a further assessment that they can do just to share a little bit more about what's going on with the rest of their behavior with food as well as exercise, body, um, and then also other parts of their life to see what is actually going on there. But is it a concerning behavior? Absolutely. Okay. Um, what is the most common eating disorder for men? That's a tricky one. Again, I don't know the current stats on that. And again, a lot of stats are hard to actually know how valid um, mm -hmm. they are because are people being honest? Are we serving the correct people? Um, so I don't actually feel prepared to be able to give an accurate response to that. People might be able to yeah. do some searching and find a different answer. Um, but I would say men, men do struggle with the same types of eating disorders that women present with. Um, do we know how much? I honestly don't actually think we do. But do men struggle with anorexia? Yes. Do they struggle with binge eating disorder? Yes. Do they struggle with bulimia? Yes. Do they struggle with orthorexia? Yes. Um, do they struggle with, you know, bigorexia, that pursuit of bigger body? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say that one they'd probably present with more often, but I do hear men very reluctantly sharing about more anorexic and bulimic type behaviors but feeling like they're alone in that because usually in popular culture, we're only hearing about women who are presenting with those symptoms. So mm -hmm. it's almost become more socially acceptable for a man to talk about his pursuit of higher weight and higher muscle than it is for them to talk about anorexic behaviors. But I believe those behaviors are quite common for men as well. So that's a long winded way of saying, I don't know, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to take some wild guesses and just talk and see what comes out yeah. of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally fine. <laughs> um, this is a question I got about alcohol. So what's the breaking point in youth for alcohol consumption? Like the difference between um, alcohol dependence or just wanting to have a good time? Mm -hmm. And with youth, we see a really high level of binging. So I don't think we can even look at just what's the quantity or the average number of drinks being consumed per week, because as mm -hmm. soon as we do that, the actual reality of what's happening gets lost. Yeah. Um, that for youth, you do need to look at how often those binges are happening, how often consumption is happening, how much, and also what the motivation is behind it. Um, that for some people, I've had many clients that they report from first drink, they just know that they have a different relationship with alcohol. Um, they notice that they drink harder, faster, more, and just differently than their peers. Um, and they also notice that they very usually early on start to engage with progressive drinking behaviors, meaning like they'll find themselves drinking even before they go out to socialize because the mm -hmm. amount of drinking that their peers are doing isn't actually enough to give them what they're looking for. Um, if any youth are having blackouts, so where there's periods of time where they actually can't remember what was happening, that's also a, a very clear warning sign that they may be drinking in a pretty unhealthy way. Because for somebody to be having a blackout, 
usually that means that they've developed quite a bit of tolerance and or are drinking in a pretty unhealthy way. So looking at blackouts, looking at the motivation, looking at frequency, amount consumed. Again, there's not going to be like a cutoff point that says, okay, if you're drinking this many drinks per week um, on this many occasions, that's dependence versus not. I know that Health Canada, you know, they try to put out these guidelines, um, but again, they're guidelines. So mm -hmm. body type, body mass, everything is going to make a difference in how we deal with alcohol. Um, but if you are concerned, even to ask that question, usually people aren't asking questions about, is this healthy? Is this okay? If there's not some inkling inside of them that something's a bit off or unusual. So if you're even having those questions of, is this okay? Is this normal? That probably would be a warning sign to you that you may want to search a little bit more, have a consultation with somebody, um, because even to ask that question shows your internal knowing, your internal radar is going off and you need to pay attention to that. For sure. Um, do children get eating dis disorders and have you ever treated a child for an eating disorder? Children do. Um, I've heard about, you know, even as young as six, seven, eight-year-olds starting to develop wow. the unhealthy relationship with their body. Um, usually that's where it will start is there's a real like hyper focus on their body, on how they look. And then that can also generate some eating related behaviors. I personally don't treat children. So I never have treated a child for an eating disorder. But that's simply because my practice isn't really open or geared to that. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen, you know, in the psychological community, even just here in Calgary, people posting and asking, hey, could someone see a, a seven-year-old um, who's presenting with some unhealthy body image or disordered eating patterns? So it definitely can start to present itself fairly early on. Um, mm -hmm. And that's partially because of the, the biological and the genetic nature of these conditions that situations, different environments, traumas, um, different exposure to different substances, different behaviors can just flip that internal switch on that genetic programming. Mm -hmm. Even parents, I've had parents who will say they kind of knew even from when their kid was an infant, um, especially when they were a toddler, that they could start to see just that the behavior was a bit different um, than other kids that they had known. And usually it starts with kids being a bit more obsessive, a bit more compulsive, mm -hmm. um, going a little bit farther with things can be anything it can be risk taking, it can be food, it can be whatever. Um, and then that will progress. And for some people, it progresses into food. And for some people, it progresses sooner rather than later. That's crazy. It can start so young. And I'm sure like social media as well. And just 
media in general can also have play a huge role in that too. I will say, and I don't want to parent blame because parents blame themselves a lot for everything anyways. Um, However, modeling does play a factor. So yes, there's the external modeling from society, what we're seeing in social media and on media in general. Um, But what I've heard from more people than not is we do look to our immediate supports for what they're doing and how they're behaving. And so even subtle things like body checking, um, comments about, oh, I I look fat today, or I don't look good in this today, or I feel bloated, Mm -hmm. preoccupation with food, with calories, with diet in the household. These are behaviors that if that young person is seeing that, plus they also have that genetic risk factor, doesn't take much sometimes for that to start that perfect storm. Um, So when I really start to have more conversations with people about their background and about where they've come from, more often than not, people can cite specific behaviors that they saw a caregiver do, um, whether it was around food or body or clothing that started to put the body and food relationship into their front view mirror because otherwise kids aren't focusing on that right like Mm -hmm. they need to pick up that this is important and something to focus on somewhere so the modeling component is is important so for people who are parents out there I would really encourage them to look at their own relationship with food and with body and with self-esteem because wherever you're at there is going to be modeling and there can be an impact on kids accordingly. Okay. Um, I'm going to move on to a myth or fact segment. Some of these you may have already touched on a bit, but you can just state myth or fact, or you can go into more detail if you like. So the first one is eating disorders are more common in women than in men. I'm going to have to say that's a myth. Yeah. Cause more men might, also have it, but just not come forward with it type of thing. That's my suspicion. Yeah. Um, Myth or fact, eating disorders are a choice. That is a myth for sure. Okay. Um, Myth or fact, you can tell someone has an eating disorder just by their appearance. Myth. Genetics can contribute to the risk of developing an eating disorder. Total fact. Yeah. Yeah. Now how like can you explain how that kind of works? Like, is it based on your parents? Like how, like if they suffered from an eating disorder, you may like be more likely to develop one as well. So it's more about the addiction risk that comes through genetics and Mm -hmm. how that manifests depends on the individual, their environment, other triggers that come. Um, But for any type of addictive behavior, it's now currently thought to be about 60 to 70% of the risk of that unhealthy behavior comes through genetics. The remainder of that comes through things like environment, trauma, exposure Mm -hmm. to different substances and behaviors. Um, So that's a pretty high percentage that comes from genetics. And for some people, it may not be that their parents have eating disorders, 
but their parents may struggle with like workaholic behaviors or perfectionist behaviors. They might struggle with substances. So they might struggle with alcohol or drugs. Um, They might struggle with codependency. They might struggle with gambling. Like there can be a whole bunch of different places that this surfaces. And so the unfortunate part then is that people may see these specific behaviors in a parent and go, well, well, I want to make sure that I'm never going to be a workaholic like my dad. Um, mm-hmm. So then they work really hard to make sure that they have balance in their relationship with work. But then lo and behold, they're not paying attention to other behaviors that could pop up. And then they start to notice that same part of the brain um, creep into another behavior like food. So that's Hmm. a scenario that can come up. Um, But another one is that a family member may have an eating disorder and then they themselves find themselves struggling too. Um, There's not really any kind of hard and fast rules um, about when or how or if that's going to happen. Um, It's truly down to some of the individual uniqueness of each person, each person's environment, as well as each person's brain and how things are going to manifest. But you can even look back a few generations. It doesn't have to just be at a parent or a sibling. And if people are seeing, you know, aunts, uncles, grandparents, Mm -hmm. the generation back from there. Um, Obviously, as we go further back, there wasn't a lot of focus on eating disorders or addiction in those days. So people may not be saying, oh, yeah, great, great grandparents had um, an eating disorder. They may have, but we just wouldn't know because that wasn't being focused on at the time. So usually when I'm asking clients about family history, they'll usually focus on the last two generations. Mm -hmm. And within that, there's at least one, if not more people who had an addiction or mental health issue of some sort, whether it was an eating disorder or something else. Interesting. Um, And last one, eating disorders can be a phase you grow out of. Yeah, I have to call myth on that one. Yeah, because I I am a strong believer because I see it all the time in the chronic nature of these conditions. Mm -hmm believe that recovery is possible, but recovery does require some ongoing effort and it requires that ongoing thoughtfulness about that behavior and about health. Um, And so people can have years, decades um, where things are fairly stable, but that doesn't just come out of nowhere. That comes out of Mm -hmm. a lot of work, a lot of effort, um, and continued change and growth. And there can still be some relapses or flare-ups that happen along the way. So um, I see the chronic parts of these conditions every day. It might look different when it pops up down the road, might pop up in a totally different behavior, or the eating disorder might look totally different. Um, But I think it does people a disservice if they think, oh, this can be out of mind, out of focus, Mm -hmm. because I find that's often where it will present itself kind of hard and fast and pull people right back in. So you need to recognize and understand the chronic part of this. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, awesome. That's basically all I have for you today. Um, Yeah. Thank you for coming. I learned a lot. And I also learned that Maybe I should call you after two because like I've definitely struggled with an eating disorder for years and kind of like closeted it and like 
it'll come back after like a few months or weeks. I'll think it's fine. And then it kind of pops up again. And yeah, that's, that's not a great thing. <laughs> and I think something I didn't mention that I would like to say is that mm-hmm. I've noticed lot of people who struggle with eating disorders, especially um, where that's kind of the main main behavior that they have a problem with is there's often a lot of challenges with perfectionism, high standards, Mm -hmm. and a desire to control. And so times like this that we're in with COVID, um, I don't think it's any coincidence that there's been a tremendous rise in people presenting for care for eating disorders Mm. to say there's been a rise in eating disorders, because I think that would be very naive of our society to think that that's the case. Um, But in a time where there's so much and such big things that are out of our control, Sometimes these are behaviors that can support people in seemingly finding a thing that they can control. So it's almost a mechanism that is designed for coping. Um, Okay, if I can control my relationship with food or my relationship with my body or exercise, I feel Mm -hmm. like all is okay in the world because all is okay in my world. So it gives this, this artificial sense of control But of course, then those behaviors in and of themselves can create a lot of challenges for people. Um, So those are often like very common symptoms that there has to be more to treatment than just, okay, let's get you eating differently, exercising differently, behaving differently. There's a strong emotional and mental component to this. Hence why it's a mental health condition, um, not a physical health condition. So it's a mental health condition with physical symptoms. And those are often some of the underlying mental mechanisms that mm-hmm. need to learn how to deal with. So on the recovery side, like learning how to practice acceptance, detachment, yeah. boundaries, letting go um, is so important, even though the brain does want to keep pursuing high standards, control, um, and a strong attachment to things. And that's the Mm -hmm. fundamental of addiction from my perspective. It's the brain getting very strongly and easily attached to things that can be food, that can be body, that can be feelings, that can be substances, it can be other behaviors. So that's, that's what I love to treat. And that's what I'm passionate about treating is that brain that gets easily and overly attached, whatever that happens. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to add that part because there's so like such deep, mental and emotional symptoms to this but I think I'll just get caught in the the superficial parts of okay well let's just change relationship with food or relationship with body and people have tried to do that it's like okay I'll, I'll exercise different I'll eat different but they're not addressing the underlying drivers of this and hence yeah. it becomes more challenging and usually then more flare-ups and more intense flare-ups will continue to happen Yeah, that makes sense. And like, that's exactly totally how I feel too. Like when I'm eating well and exercising a lot, everything's totally fine. I'm good. I don't think about anything. But then as soon as I start maybe exercising a bit less or I'm not eating as well, then it comes back right away. And yeah. Um, Yeah. So tell us um, like where people can find you, your website and Instagram and anything else. 
Sure. Yeah. So my website is Sana, S-A-N-A, psychological.com. And I'd really encourage people to go on there for one reason in particular. I have a newsletter sign up on my website. Um, I send out a newsletter every two months is probably what it's going to work out to be because honestly, I just don't Mm -hmm. have the time or the ability to put it together any more frequently. So it's Mm -hmm. not like people are going to be spammed. Um, But each newsletter has a specific theme. Um, The one I just sent out in February was actually themed around food and body. Upcoming one in April is going to be more focused on codependency and relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you sign up for the newsletter, you also get a free ebook on a guide to self care, which is beneficial to anybody, um, whether they're struggling with eating disorders or other symptoms, or even if you're just a really healthy and well person, but want to keep self developing. Um, It's kind of a a cool little resource to answer some questions, delve into some exploration on how you're taking care of yourself. And that's all totally free. You don't have to be a client. You don't have to access anything other than put in your email address. So I would certainly encourage people to check that out on my website and on social media, on Instagram at Sana, S-A-N-A underscore psych, P-S-Y-C. That's my main account and Sana Psychological on Facebook. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it as well. You know that.